Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to Chicago's cultural historian and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner who is an expert in ragtime piano. We chatted with civil engineers about the failing infrastructure in our state and a major architectural theorist about neoliberalism. Oh, and John Lankford played live on the air. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more only on the Lumpen Week in Review for June 9th, 2017. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to historian Tim Samuelson and MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant winner Reginald Robinson about a project by the Illinois Humanities that will recreate the legendary Pekin Theater for one night. The Pekin, America's first African-American-owned and operated theater, was the home of ragtime and the crucible of jazz. Radio Free airs every Tuesday drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. We'll start by taking a look backwards. We are joined by the uh, cultural historian of Chicago, Tim Samuelson. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, you're here, when we're going to talk about uh, Pekin Theater, amongst other things, and, and we're excited to hear about it. Oh, Tim, it, first of all, to, why don't you tell us what the cultural historian of Chicago is? What is that? Cultural historian is part of the uh, D case, and it is somebody who is responsible as the spokesperson for all things as far as Chicago's history, culture, and I do it in terms of giving programs, in terms of ex- I put exhibits on at the Chicago Cultural Center, and also serve as a resource for other city departments, museums, and even calls from the public. So people will want to find out something in my job. I always describe it as kind of a combination of when I pick up the phone, Russian roulette and lightning jeopardy, uh, which is actually a good challenge. So it's a great gig. I mean, it's a great gift, and uh, I have a good time with it. How'd you, how'd you get this job, and how'd you start in it? Uh, back in 2002, Lois Weisberg was the head of the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs, and she thought to represent the diversity of culture in the city that she would hire people who are experts in different fields. And she didn't want kind of usual kind of folks that just kind of do the ordinary sort of thing. So she established an amazing team of people. So we had a culinary person, a literary person, we had musical programs, fashion, and we would work individually and together to kind of create programs that would call attention to these different aspects of Chicago and really get people to appreciate the city and even learn aspects of it that they didn't normally know about before. Did you know Chicago had culture? I, yeah, I'm you know familiar with a little bit. Are you? This, yeah. is a, this is kind of a new concept. I'll oh, have to clue you in on all this. So, uh, yeah, there's, it, it's a little bit of a story. How many hours you got? <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the projects that you worked on? I worked on, for example, many exhibits. I did one on Louis Sullivan, on Frank Lloyd Wright. I did one on the Valmore Products Company that was an early manufacturer of African-American hair care, cosmetics, and magic voodoo. And the graphics for which were done by Chicago's first African-American graphic designer, Charles Dawson. Was that the, the company, not to interrupt you, was that the company that made pomade and had the yellow cans and stuff like that? Yes. Yeah, but well, it was Murray's, and that was done by Ch- uh, Charles Dawson. But they also did Sweet Georgia Brown, 
which is still sold, and it's one of the hipster favorites for hair. You know, I think Monty Beauchamp, who runs Blab Magazine, I believe published something on that. That's a, another local Chicago art magazine. Yes. And I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, there's a huge product line from that company. And there was, a, was there an exhibit of that as well? It was. That was my exhibit. Yeah. And we took these little tiny labels. Some of them were the size of a postage stamp. And we blew them up to like six foot tall. And the colors are great on them. And uh, and there were different kinds of potions and spells. Like there were things that were uh, different kinds of love perfumes. You know, it would you know, love me tonight. Tim, did you try any of these out? Did they work? Well, it didn't work worth a darn. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but it's you know, it certainly was worth a try. But it, it was fun, and we did have some with the original product in it. And people would line up, and so there would be, you know, like we had a bottle of Hold Your Man. And people would say, gee, can I, you know, try some of that? Why, sure. And so they'd try a little bit on. I, I didn't hear back on it, but I would have to say from trying that stuff and having it in my office, I certainly wasn't mobbed. How did they uh, get into the commercial production of Voodoo? Uh, they actually went, and actually uh, Morton Newman was a businessman who had a very great interest in magic and voodoo. In fact, he came from Jewish-Hungarian parents. And there is a tradition of kind of, of magic and spells and potions, and I believe that came from his family. His family moved to this country, and the story that isn't often told is that many of the Eastern European immigrant families wound up settling in Bronzeville. Here were brand new buildings that had just been built 20 years earlier that many of the old established white families had left in advance of African-American residents coming into the neighborhood. And many Eastern European families moved there as well. So Morton Newman grew up in Bronzeville and shared his school. He went to Wendell Phillips High School. And so he knew, uh, learned a lot about the needs of African-American cosmetics, but also that there were shared interests in that come back to uh, things back to people from New Orleans with uh, powers and root work and things like that. And basically what Morton Newman did was take lessons from what Chicago developed in mail order with Sears, Roebuck, and Company and applied it to cosmetics and magic and spirit work. That's, that's a great story. I remember that exhibit actually very fondly. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for bringing that to us. Now, of course, you're not here today to talk about Valmore, though I could hear about Valmore for several hours. You guys are with uh, The Empty Bottle putting on a production, uh, recreating the old Pekin Theater. Can you tell our listeners, first of all, what the Pekin Theater was? Well, most people don't know what the Pekin Theater uh, was. And if you go down today at 27th and State, or you think, oh, what's the 27th and State? You're not going to think of a thing because it's a bunch of empty lots. But if you were there in 1905, that was the center of African-American entertainment in not only Chicago, but in the country. The Pekin Theater was a theater that was established by Robert T. Motts as the first permanent performing arts theater owned and operated by african Americans. It had productions that it put on itself with its own stock company, wrote its own plays, many of them relating to issues of living on the south side of Chicago as African Americans in the early 20th century. And so uh, he set up 
this theater uh, that had ever-changing program of shows. And the part that is never talked about much about in Chicago is you often will hear about jazz and you'll hear about blues. But at the early 20th century, Chicago was the syncopated city. And it was a city that was one that was a center of the music that we know of as ragtime. And uh, as for terms of syncopated ragtime music, many of the great performers were here. Joe Jordan was one of the great composers and performers of ragtime. He was the musical director of the Pekin Theater. And uh, Will Marion Cook, who was a great uh, lyricist uh, who worked on many of the early African-American uh, shows in New York, uh, did work in Chicago. And so uh, this was the kind of the real center, and it gained national attention. So what kind of shows would they would they have there? Uh, just to give us a couple examples. You mentioned ragtime and stuff, but was this live theater? Was it films? What was what was the main attraction here? The theater was actually live production. So it would be a stage play, but it would have a prologue. You would have dancing. It had its own chorus line. It had a whole orchestra. So you would have an overture, much of the music composed just for that particular performance. Imagine, you know, writing, you know, a, constantly new changing shows and music exactly for it. The Pekin even had its own publication house that uh, published some of the early music. One of the kind of classics is Pekin Rag by Joe Jordan, which any you know, good virtuoso of ragtime uh, knows, that, uh, knows that piece. And, of course, we have someone also in the house who's just joined us. Reginald Robinson is a ragtime pianist. He's involved very closely with this production. Reginald, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this production from your point of view? Um, what I'm doing is I'm, I am, uh, I guess, in sort of in a way of uh, the way of Joe Jordan, what he would have been uh, I mean, in the place of the of dealing with the the other musicians um, mm -hmm. and uh, the music orchestration, and uh, working you know directly with the uh, I guess the various musicians and the orchestrator William Hayes. Mm -hmm. What's exciting about this kind of music in this period for you? What's exciting about this kind of music in in the period? Well, um, first of all, ragtime music. Uh, I've been playing it for 30 years now, and uh, I've I always thought it was exciting music. Very from the very beginning, I thought Joe Jordan was a wonderful musician, and I discovered him like right after I discovered Scott Joplin, like about a year or so. And uh, I think that just the music itself uh, is exciting. It's, it has so many things going on mm -hmm. in it. I mean, so many emotions in ragtime music. Uh, that's what's been keeping me fascinated with it over the years, the the, the rhythms, the uh, harmonies, and just the uh, various attitudes, emotions in the music. It's what been you know it's been keeping me um, interested in the music. And a production like this, I've been thinking about this something like this for years. You know, uh, uh, me and Tim, we talked about it maybe like three or four years ago. <laughs> Actually, this this whole idea and. Um, it's exciting because uh, there's nothing like this uh, in the black community. You know, nothing celebrating uh, the origins of origins of jazz music, mm -hmm. and this is it. This is the origins. This is where jazz started. I always tell people, jazz didn't just pop up out of nowhere. 
you know, people like love to talk about uh, the, the Roaring Twenties and the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Harlem Renaissance, and you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. This is the these, this is the foundation of it all, mm-hmm. and uh, everything. Like UB Blake was saying that um, a lot of the musicians, jazz musicians, like um, uh, I can't call the man's name, um, he, uh, Chick Webb. People like Chick Webb. He UB Blake knew his uh, grandfather. He was a musician, so. <laughs> You know, so these musicians, they, they were already uh, teaching their children uh, jazz. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, just really exciting that, uh, to go into this part of uh, uh, black history. Melanie Adcock spoke to Don Whitmer and Darren Olson from the American Society of Civil Engineers about Illinois' failing infrastructure and citizens' flight from the city of Chicago. Texting Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our first guests today, Don Whitmer and Darren Olson, are from the ASCE Illinois section of American Society of Civil Engineers, and they are here to talk with us today about their mission and public events. Don and Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here with us today. So, so Darren, I'm, I'm going to ask you if you could explain to us what is involved when we refer to infrastructure and, and give us an overview of what this program is. So infrastructure is all around us. It's the, the roads we drive on. It's the, uh, the pipes below the ground that deliver uh, our water to our house, take the waste away from our house. It's the rail. It's the, the transit. Um, it's the schools that we educate our kids in. Um, it's the uh, inland waterways that ship grain from our country to, to China. Um, it's, it's really it's all-encompassing in these um, building our economy um, and helping us uh, thrive as, as the nation that we are. Um, and we, as the American Society of Civil Engineers, um, as the premier um, engineering society, we want to make sure that we're reporting back to, um, to the public in general as to how our infrastructure is doing. We don't want to wait for the next bridge collapse for people to realize that a lot of our bridges um, are in um, a state of deterioration. We want to get this information out to the public, to the elected officials, to the ones making the decisions, mm-hmm. so that everyone is aware of, of uh, the, the current state of our infrastructure. Mm. And, and ASC, actually, they started this about 16 years ago at the national level, and we've been doing it locally now for two report cards over four-year periods, and we're looking at start having another one next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but they started just kind of grading things. And, you know, the grades have been not very good, you know, D pluses, uh, Ds, things like that, which, you know, as you look, if you're if you're a parent with a kid coming home with that grade, you would not be very happy. That's right. So Illinois got a D plus and for infrastructure. Why, why so high? <laughs> there are other states that are actually uh, lower than us, and there are some states that are higher. So we're Illinois you know, somewhat in the middle. Okay. And, well. and, it, and it depends on some of the, you know, some of the conditions of some of the infrastructure isn't doing as well, but there's some where the, inf- the inf- uh, investments there, like railroads, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in this area here, the CREATE project going on where they're trying to grade separate a lot of these railroads, you know, there's been the joke that it takes longer for a train to get through the Chicago area than it is to get from Los Angeles to Chicago. Um, just with all the grade crosses and everything else that goes on. So they're looking at trying to separate these tracks or separate them from roadways so that things will work better. Um, 
the railroads themselves, the private industry does a lot of investment in, mm -hmm. in their infrastructure too. So the rail's been, been improving na nationwide, I think, but then there's other categories that are going the other way. Mm, okay. So. Now, now, what are the eight criteria? There's eight criteria I saw on your website that the infrastructure is graded on. Can you tell us what those are? It's pretty interesting. I sure. Thought. Yeah. So capacity, you know, does this infrastructure does this capacity need meet the needs uh, currently and, and is it going to meet it in the future uh, condition? Uh, what is the this infrastructure's current condition? Is it, mm -hmm. um, you know, if it's a bridge, is it, are bridges falling down? Are they, you know, in, in good structural condition? Um, funding, uh, which is investment, you know, how are we looking at how we're currently funding the infrastructure versus um, what does that funding look like in the future? Sometimes that can be very, very cloudy. Mm -hmm. um, future need, uh, we gauge uh, what the current need for this infrastructure is, but then uh, how do we envision it uh, being needed in the future? Is that need going to increase? Um, operation and maintenance, uh, that's something that we all infrastructure needs to be uh, operated and maintained. And that's one of the things that uh, people often forget is that, you know, you put a large um, uh, sewer system in, you put a brand new roadway in. Um, all that needs to be maintained. Your job isn't done once once that construction is over. Uh, public safety, uh, to what extent is the public safety um, jeopardized by the condition of the infrastructure? Uh, resilience, which uh, is, I, I think, one of the um, new up-and-coming uh, categories that we look at, um, where is this piece of infrastructure or this category of infra infrastructure um, able to withstand both natural and man-made disasters. We're seeing mm -hmm. both of those uh, more and more. Um, and are we designing and building our infrastructure to meet um, that current challenge? Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, innovation. And Don talked a little bit about this. Are we using things like drones or uh, are we incorporating um, autonomous vehicles? Uh, how are we using innovation to help our infrastructure system? Mm -hmm. What is the, the grade looking like for, for Illinois for 2018? Can you guys give us any hints as to what it's going to be? Are they going to, you know, they in 2010 they had a, C, uh, no, a D plus, um, and in two for, uh, two, 2014 a C minus. Are they, do you think they're going to do better or worse? Do you have any uh, thoughts? Well, we saw a little bit of an upward trend there. There were a lot of, um, you know, very good uh, projects and, and investment that has been made in infrastructure from 2010 to 2014. Uh, we saw us... Um, tollway work. We saw, you know, the city of Chicago is doing a great job investing in its water and sewer systems, replacing uh, hundreds of miles of both of those every year. Uh, so we did see a, a good uptick. Um, we are seeing some of those trends continue in, in certain infrastructure categories. Um, certainly in water, we're continuing to invest. In roadways, we see uh, the uh, Jane Adams. There was a huge investment in that. There's future planning for the um, a Western Bypass, uh, which is a new toll road potentially. Um, but we're also then seeing some, some challenges in other areas, and uh, probably one of the biggest challenges for infrastructure um, is that we need an investment in that. We need long-term planning, and neither of those can happen without a solid uh, state budget, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need the, the funding and the commitment at the state level to help our state's infrastructure. And if we haven't passed a budget now in a couple of years, it makes it very, very difficult to look at some of these long-term projects because these projects don't happen just over the course of a year or two. They're five, ten years in the planning and building. Um, and without a solid uh, financial um, uh, state, uh, that some of that just doesn't happen. So that's probably one of the biggest things that is going to hinder our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, 
is Illinois getting an F in any of these eight criteria? (laughs) 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 I have to ask. I can't not ask. Very unlikely that any of the uh, the different categories of infrastructure would get an F. Okay, unlikely. Well, that's that's good to know. Now, when when your organization makes recommendations for solutions, who listens and and what's being done? We bring those solutions uh, really to the decision makers, um, which starts uh, down in Springfield in Illinois mm-hmm. to our elected officials and. Um, they're the ones that are setting the. They're the leaders that are are setting the the precedent and setting the direction for um, how uh, the state spends its money, um, and so we every uh, spring we go down to to Springfield and talk with our elected officials um, about you know what how we view the current state of infrastructure. We bring our report card down um, and let them know that we're going to be looking at that in the future. With us in 2018, we'll have a new report card. And so really, we, we start with those elected officials at the state level. Um, but then, you know, we talk with all sorts of uh, people. We talk with our um, municipal uh, elected uh, officials. Um, we talk on uh, to different trade groups. We talk to um, any partner organizations that help us and have a common mission of um, uh, reporting and improving uh, on the state's infrastructure. <laughs> Buildings on Air had theorist Douglas Spencer on to speak about the architecture of neoliberalism. Spencer talked about how neoliberalism's economic imperatives bled into architecture, turning buildings into models and modes of control. Buildings on Air, with host Kiefer Dunn, airs the first Saturday of every month. All right, but first up is Doug Spencer. Doug, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Thanks so much for, for joining. Um, Oh, pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm really, really happy you could be here. I've been a, a fan of this book, I think, since it came out um, and, and was delighted to have another chance to read it through. Um, hey. Yeah, I think for a lot of the people, a lot of the people who are listening over the airwaves, um, they, they might be a little bit confused as to why architecture has any relationship with neoliberalism at all. Um, but I think this book does a really good job of uh, spelling it out in a, in a very uh, intelligent and accessible way. I also love that it doesn't shy away from naming the names. Um, and uh, instead of kind of following in this tradition of sort of architecture theory that's always trying to pull things out, it really is sort of tying things together. Um, these big ideas, yeah. economic history, um, and and the actual buildings uh, themselves. Um, but I, I guess to go back um, to the title, um, the architecture sure. of neoliberalism. The world world of the word neoliberalism um, is often used as a synonym for extreme capitalism. But as you point out in the book, that's not exactly the case. So I'm wondering if you could right. start by defining neoliberalism for us. And, and, and talking about that. Okay, I'll do my best. Uh, clearly, it's a, a challenging thing to do. You're exactly right to say that it's, it's often seen, even by those who might be sympathetic to the term and using the term neoliberalism, to, to stand, stand straightforwardly for the idea of a kind of extreme, uh, uncaring and cruel capitalism. And there certainly are kind of cruel and uncaring things about neoliberalism, but there's more to it than that. And there are things that make it, um, that, that, uh, I mean, it has some particular relationships to power that are not always 
straightforwardly uh, the same as what we might say of capitalism. So the, I think the main thing to say is that there's a real vision right back in the origins of neoliberalism of the relationship between the individual and the state and society and the economy. And the, the core or one of the core beliefs of neoliberalism is that there cannot be any planning because the world is simply too complex for any human individual to grasp. Friedrich Hayek, one of the founding theorists of neoliberalism, puts it very straightforwardly, um, and, and he says that human beings are necessarily ignorant. So if human beings on that basis attempt to plan, that's, that's sheer folly. And he also says that would lead directly to totalitarianism. Um, so his model of neoliberalism is that it's, it's what he would call cybernetic. So this means in more straightforward language that the individual is like someone steering a ship on the sea. Now, you, don't, you can't hope to control the waves or the weather uh, or where the land is or where your harbour is. All you can do, do is steer your path as an individual in response to the environment you're given. Now, for neoliberalism, that environment is not the sea, but it's the, the market. So you can't hope to control the market. Your, your place is just to steer your own individual project in relation to the market. And that's a given condition. It's inescapable. Hmm. Um, but, but for neoliberalism, of course, that's not presented by the neoliberalists as uh, a form of control, but as the very condition of your freedom. Right, it's, which is interesting. Um, I think one of the other fascinating things that the book goes into is uh, it really is a serviceable sort of history of how neoliberalism came to be, right? Uh, there are these, yeah. these thinkers um, uh, who really had a concerted project of how do we get these ideas um, into the halls of power, um, which Absolutely. obviously they've been successful at. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that history a little bit. Sure. So another thing people uh, would often say when they hear the word neoliberal use or read the word neoliberal is that it doesn't really exist and it's some phantom from the fevered, paranoid brain of, of the left. And it, and it isn't. It's a real thing. As you say, it is a, such a, a project. Paradoxically, perhaps, uh, it involves forms of planning and uh, a deliberate attempt to, to spread its truth. Those truths I've just kind of tried to, to capture briefly about the way in which the, the economic is the inescapable environment in which we have to live. Those, those truths are spread programmatically by having key individuals uh, specialists, intellectuals, um, placed in, in academic and governmental positions. So it is exactly a, a type of project. Um, yeah. So, so this is, it's, it's kind of consciously, um, produced and there's a conscious endeavor to make it a kind of inescapable truth that, that challenges the notion of, uh, planning that you might find on the, the basis of a kind of Keynesian 
notion right. of the, the economy and the political. Yeah, because, I mean, these, these guys started think tanks and they uh, sure. got their ideas in front of the media, as, as you kind of detail. Um, I, yeah, and, and uh, I wonder, I think one of the most important reasons why that is important is because it yeah. makes the idea of overturning it something that's plausible, right? It's, it, it, yeah. it takes it away from being this inevitable fact, as you, as you said. And, you know, I think opens up some possibilities for the left to consider it and start to say, yeah. well, hey, you know, these people radically transformed society over the course of, you know, 30 years um, by having yeah. a kind of concerted project and a grand overarching vision. And, you know, why, why can't we do that too on some level? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't um, proclaim myself to be any sort of uh, specialist in, in the political, um, but but certainly I, I agree with what you say. It does open up possibilities. And uh, more humbly, perhaps, I, I suggest that what I'm trying to achieve in the book is to show a particular way in which neoliberalism operates on the ground, as it were, in order that that might be challenged right. as well. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump pulls the United States out of Paris, Spicy goes missing, terror attacks strike Britain on Iran, Comey doesn't want to share a room, and Republicans get ready to show a body. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 133, June 1st. Trump today pulled the United States from the Paris Climate Accord, prioritizing the economy over the environment and global alliances. He will stick to the process laid out in the Paris Agreement, which can take about four years to complete, leaving a final decision up to American voters in the 2020 election. Trump said the United States will, quote, begin negotiations to re-enter the Paris Accord to, quote, see if we can make a deal that's fair, and if we can, that's great. Trump claimed falsely that the Paris Agreement would punish Americans by instituting onerous energy restrictions and cost the United States 2.7 million jobs. And the Trump administration has begun returning copies of a 2014 Senate report about the CIA's detention and interrogation program in a move that maybe in the 6,700-page report could be locked in Senate vaults for good and thus exempt from laws requiring that government records become public. The report, which is said to be detailed and embarrassing to the CIA, has been criticized by arch-conservative Republicans. And the Supreme Court is likely to hear a challenge to Trump's Muslim ban. Trump filed an appeal late last night setting up a constitutional showdown over the president's authority to make national security judgments in the name of protecting Americans from terrorism. A federal appeals court in Richmond, Virginia has already ruled the Muslim ban was a product of religious animus and intolerance and is in violation of the First Amendment. And the White House has drafted a rule to roll back a federal requirement that mandates employers to provide birth control coverage and health insurance plans. That mandate generated scores of lawsuits by employers that had religious objections to it. A court challenge by women's rights groups against the Trump administration is inevitable. And a man facing murder charges after he allegedly fatally stabbed two people and injured another on a Portland train appeared in court Tuesday and ranted about free speech. Jeremy Joseph Christian, who had a history of run-ins with law enforcement and is a self-proclaimed white supremacist, is charged with murder. From the dock, he said, quote, death to the enemies of America. Leave this country if you hate our freedom. You call it terrorism. I call it patriotism. And the former pro-Brexit UKIP leader Nigel Farage is a person of interest in the FBI investigation into Trump and Russia. Farage's relationships with both the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has raised the interest of the FBI. 
If you triangulate Russia, WikiLeaks, Assange, and Trump associates, the person who comes up with the most hits is Nigel Farage, said a source. He's right in the middle of these relationships. Day 134, June 2nd. Trump may have skirted federal ethics rules by retroactively granting a blanket exemption to allow Stephen Bannon to communicate with editors at Breitbart News. The Office of the Government Ethics questioned that validity, saying that retroactive exemptions cannot be granted. Said the head of the OGE, if you need a retroactive waiver, you have violated a rule. And in a cheeky statement, Vladimir Putin said that, quote, patriotic hackers may have meddled in the U.S. election, but he insisted that none of their potential activities were state-backed. In comments to reporters at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, Putin likened hackers to artists who could act on behalf of Russia if they felt its interests were being threatened. Said Putin, artists may act on behalf of their country. They wake up in a good mood and paint things. Same with hackers. They woke up today, read something about the state-to-state relations. If they are patriotic, they contribute in a way they think is right to fight against those who say bad things about Russia. Putin has repeatedly denied Russian involvement in the 2016 elections in this country. And 30 mayors, three governors, more than 80 university presidents, and 100 businesses are negotiating directly with the United Nations to have their greenhouse gases counted under the Paris Accords. Trump, of course, withdrew from that agreement yesterday in a process that will take four years to complete. But if the cities are successful, they could actually exceed the targets set out by President Obama in signing the initial agreement. And the White House has apparently ordered federal agencies to ignore Democrats' oversight requests, fearing that information could be weaponized against Trump. The goal is to choke off the Democratic congressional minorities from asking questions of the administration intended to embarrass or attack the president. And the Russia probe now includes a grand jury investigation into Michael Flynn. Robert Mueller's investigation is looking into Flynn's paid work as a lobbyist for a Turkish businessman and contact between Russian officials and Flynn and other Trump associates. In related news, the Trump team wanted to lift sanctions on Russia when he took office, but career diplomats pressured Congress to block that move. Bipartisan legislation was introduced in February to bar the administration from granting sanctions relief. The proposed bill was shelved six days later when Flynn resigned, making it, quote, clear if they lifted sanctions, there would be a political firestorm. And the Secret Service is investigating Kathy Griffin for the photo online of her holding what looks like the decapitated head of Trump, her lawyer said. She basically exercised her first amendment rights to tell a joke, said Griffin's lawyers. Griffin was fired by CNN after the photo circulated on social media, said Griffin tearfully. I don't think I will have a career after this. I'm going to be honest. Trump broke me. Day 135, June 3rd. Seven people were killed and dozens more were injured as three men rammed a van to pedestrians on London Bridge in England before stabbing dozens in the borough market. Within a matter of minutes, the three assailants were chased down and killed by the police. This attack came five days before the elections in Britain. That election will be held. Prime Minister Theresa May said enough is enough and ordered a sweeping review of Britain's counterterrorism strategy. May also said, quote, there is, to be frank, far too much tolerance of extremism in our country. Twelve people have been arrested so far in connection with those attacks. In a series of posts on Twitter, Trump injected himself into that story, criticizing London's Muslim mayor, claiming he was soft on terror and misquoting him, and then affirming his Muslim ban was indeed a ban despite the word of his lawyers. Trump tweeted in part, quote, people, the lawyers and the courts can call it whatever they want, but I'm calling it what we need and what we need is a travel ban in all caps. Trump's tweets were met with international condemnation and disbelief. Day 136, June 4th. Five Arab countries broke off diplomatic relations with Qatar, a crucial United States ally in the region, as well as air and sea travel to and from that isolated state. Saudi Arabia encouraged, quote, all brotherly states to do the same. Qatar's support of Al Jazeera and the Muslim Brotherhood is at issue. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has offered to broker the impasse. Trump appeared to take credit for this diplomatic imbroglio, tweeting, quote, During my recent trip to the Middle East, I stated that there could no longer be funding of radical ideology. Leaders pointed to Qatar. Look. 
The move is bizarre. Qatar is home to two major American command posts, including a $60 million center from which the USA and their allies conduct their air war on ISIS. Qatar's ambassador, Mashal bin Hamad al-Tani, expressed surprise at Trump's tweets, saying, quote, no one approached us directly and said, look, we have problems with this and this and this. Day 137, June 5th. A top-secret NSA report showed Russian military intelligence executed a cyber attack on at least one U.S. voting software supplier last year, sending spear phishing emails to more than 100 local election officials just days before our election. That report indicates that Russian hacking penetrated further into voting systems than was previously understood and states unequivocally that it was Russian military intelligence that conducted the attacks. The NSA report is at odds with Putin's denial that Russia had interfered in foreign relations. And in a related story, in the first leak prosecution of the Trump era, a 25-year-old government contractor has been charged after authorities say she gave that document to The Intercept. Reality Lay Winner, 25, was arrested Saturday after The Intercept posted a redacted version of the document that described those cyber attacks against election contractors. Trump will not invoke executive privilege to try to block James Comey from testifying for Congress this week. That hearing, scheduled for Thursday, promises to be must-see TV. Comey has said Trump attempted to shut down an investigation into Michael Flynn, and this has raised the possibility of obstruction of justice. Day 138, June 6th. The New York Times is reporting that Trump is under pressure from his own staff to stop tweeting. He shot back at his own staff this morning with two tweets defending his use of social media. After sending out two warm-up tweets linking to Fox and Friends news clips, he wrote, quote, the fake MSM is working so hard trying to get me not to use social media. They hate that I can get the honest and unfiltered message out. Sorry, folks, but if I would have relied on the fake news of CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, WashPost, or NY Times, I would have had zero chance of winning the White House. Trump's tweets have undermined a number of his legal efforts, including his Muslim ban. And London Mayor Sadiq Khan is calling for Trump's state visit to Britain to be canceled after Trump misquoted and then berated the mayor following Saturday's attack in London, which killed seven people. Sadiq Khan is London's first Muslim mayor. And Yahoo is reporting that lawyers with at least four major law firms refused to represent Trump in the Russian investigations in part over concerns he would not listen to their advice. The unwillingness of some of the country's most prestigious attorneys has complicated the administration's efforts to mount a coherent defense strategy. And Trump also announced plans to privatize air traffic control. A CBO analysis says privatizing air traffic control would increase the cost of air travel. Republican leaders are also planning a last gasp health care vote on July 4th. Political reports they do not have the votes and are prepared to take a failed vote on the Obamacare repeal in order to, quote, show them a body and begin the seven-year quest to a definitive end. Eric Trump on ABC News Today called the Trump-Russia collusion allegations, quote, the greatest hoax of all time. He added the investigation into the possible coordination between the presidential campaign and the Kremlin's election meddling was a witch hunt. But Forbes also reports that Trump shifted money from Eric Trump's kids' cancer charity into his own business. Eric Trump's charity golf event was supposed to use his family's golf course for free with most of the other costs donated, but the Trump organization billed the charity for more than $1.2 million for its use. Charity experts say the listed expenses defy any reasonable cost justification for a one-day golf tournament, with one saying, quote, this maneuver would appear to have more in common with a drug cartel's money laundering operation than a charity's best practices textbook. And also today, the acting U.S. ambassador to China quit over Trump's climate policy, feeling unable to deliver the formal notification of the U.S. decision to leave the agreement. Day 139, June 7th. Iran was hit by its first terror attack in over a decade today when armed men and perhaps one woman simultaneously staged attacks on the parliament and on the mausoleum of Ayatollah Khomeini. 
12 people were killed and at least 35 others have been wounded in the assaults, according to state-sponsored news. ISIS has claimed responsibility. Iran has also blamed Saudi Arabia for the attacks, but the attacks did follow a pattern used by ISIS. And ahead of a blockbuster day of testimony to Congress, the New York Times is reporting that James Comey told Attorney General Jeff Sessions he did not want to be alone in a room with Trump again. Comey was rattled by Trump's request to end an investigation into Michael Flynn. Dan Coats, another advisor, corroborates Comey's story, saying Trump tried to use Coats as a go-between. In a related story, Jeff Sessions is said to have offered his resignation to Trump. Trump is reportedly unhappy with Sessions' performance, and the White House has refused to say whether or not Sessions retains Trump's support. And Trump tweeted this morning he will nominate Christopher Wray to head the FBI. Wray is a former top Justice Department official and has served as New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's personal lawyer. Trump's job approval rating dropped again this week to 36%, with 58% of Americans now disapproving of his performance, according to Gallup. These are the Trump Diaries. Who gives a sh? Spoke with Jesse Rios about his history of activism, from participating in anti-Vietnam War marches to witnessing a riot when Sly and the Family Stone didn't appear for their concert in Chicago's Grant Park. WGAS with Matt Machowski airs every first and third Sunday at 3 p.m. So, um, you know, one of the uh, other things I I wanted to ask you about was uh, you had met and and had been involved in activism with Cesar Chavez. That was an offshoot of my union activities with the UAW. And it happened in 19, uh, I want to say around 68, because the movement, the youth movement was really moving. I happened to be at that time, let's see, I was... 24? Yeah. 24, 26 years old. Anyway, uh, the result was that uh, here in Chicago, there was the lettuce boycott. Yeah. It it didn't didn't start in Chicago. It started out west. Mm -hmm. But Cesar Chavez sent a guy by the name of Eliseo Medina to work with the Chicago Catholic Charities on Wabash Avenue and 13th Street. Mm -hmm. They had their office there. And a few Latinos who were involved in unions, met with I met a friend of mine named Augie Salas, who's my lifelong friend to this day. Mm-hmm. And he uh, garnered up some other guys from the Steel Workers Union, uh, myself from the Machinist Union, different little unions, and there was about maybe 20 of us. Mm-hmm. And wound up meeting with Mr. Medina, Eliseo Medina, a good friend who I recently saw, by the way. And uh, he uh, was leading the boycott in Chicago. And that's where I learned some union activism about yeah. being able to walk into a grocery store and break some eggs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the tomatoes fell on the floor. <laughs> Whoops. You picked the wrong pile, <laughs> the wrong apple, and it fell out. <laughs> but so the, so um, for, for people who, who might not um, know as much, uh, why was there this boycott? Uh, the boycott was about the United Farm Workers Union. Which started by with Cesar Chavez. Interestingly enough, it started out with a group of Filipinos mm-hmm. in California, North California, Salinas, California, I believe, and the Mexican workers. That together they wanted us to, to fight for decent prices, and not only that for safety and health, decent wages. I, I meant yeah. to say, not prices. And working in a hot sun, picking lettuce, is a hard job. Yeah, amongst other. Vegetables that they pick and fruits. On, on a day like today, you know, it's uh, yeah. pretty warm out. I walk the dog and I'm like and out sim- of breath. <laughs> I can only imagine. And, and over the years, I just, I guess I learned that over the years, what, how hard that work, that job is. Yeah. Because you're out there in that hot sun, as you say, laboring and, and working for, 
the filled baskets with tomatoes, with cherries, with with uh, in this case it was lettuce heads that they were putting into sacks. Mm-hmm. And as we as we learned to say, when the black eagle flies, which was the eagle is a symbol of the United Farm Workers Union. Yeah. When it flies, then we can go and buy this lettuce. Hmm. And he he eventually, I had the pleasure of meeting Cesar Chavez, uh, 1970 or so, when he came to Chicago. Yeah. And visited here, and we boycotted. Obviously, we went and got in front of a few stores in those mm-hmm. days, but. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to drive him around for two days. What what was he? I mean, you're 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 driving the car. He's in what in the back seat? In the back seat uh, with somebody was, else, and I was just the driver. I got yeah. lucky. What, what what was what was that like? I mean, um, you, you got what, to overhear some of the conversations. I mean, what, what was good about it was the era of Dan Walker, who was then governor of Illinois, mm-hmm. and he had promised the reason Caesar came was to help him. I believe because. Walker had promised to remove all the lettuce from uh, state institutions, yeah. like universities and cafeterias and so forth. Yeah, that was the uh, li- more liberal Walker as compared to the Very other Walker, Walker in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Walker. these yes. days. Yes. Um, no no relation, but yeah. Uh, yeah. As I say, it's almost 40-some years ago, right? <laughs> but anyway— uh, what was it like to drive Caesar around? All you did is drive and listen, and he's talking to somebody else in the back, and mm-hmm. we're driving around. around. The what was interesting was that we had a state police car in front of us all the time. Oh, really? To help to lead <laughs> us through. The, the, and he would stop at churches or different organizing drives that he was doing, mm-hmm. and it was fun to be there. And I was just like, hey, uh, I'm important. I'm driving him. <laughs> <laughs> but Edward Doyle like, did throw me off the stage in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin Steel. Okay. Down south, they have a uh, Eddie Vidorlak had a hall down there. I don't remember the name of it now, but I remember that mm-hmm. I, I went to go sit on stage and in the in the back, not in the front, in the background. Yeah. And, and he says, well, "Are you supposed to be up here?" I says, "I don't know. I'm Caesar's driver." He says, "Get off! Get off! Get off!" <laughs> <laughs> so I wound up. I wasn't that important. <laughs> I, I mean, um, you know, did you get a sense of like his his personality? I mean, he was like this uh, well respected labor leader at the time, and and today, I mean, there have been movies made about him, books written about him. Uh, you go down to the Chicago History Museum; they have like a whole like you know little area about the the boycott campaign um you know did you get a sense was this uh someone who you know uh, was real talkative or was this uh someone who you know kind of like kept his thoughts to himself uh as i said i, I was just driving so what i heard mm. was him discussing issues with whoever this person was that he was with it was usually somebody that was taking him to the next stop that we were doing mm-hmm. but he wasn't very what shall I say, talkative uh, in terms of being uh, loud or anything. He was very quiet, really. And, hmm. and uh, I don't want to use the word humble, but he, was, he, he wasn't self-importance was not a big issue with him. Hmm. He, didn't, he didn't care. He was very down-to-earth, very easy to get along with. Yeah. And I remember that he brought his brother Richard with him at that time. And, hmm. and Caesar did not uh, drink. He was a vegetarian, I believe. Hmm. And... Uh, but Richard and I, at least I shared a couple of beers with him because I went down to the corner and bought him. And we sat out. Well, Caesar was upstairs on the third floor hiding out. Yeah. Uh, 
His brother Richard and I got to sit down and just share a beer <laughs> <laughs> and relax in Chicago on the stoops. Yeah. That's what we used to do in the old days. Radio Free also was delighted to have local musician and punk rock legend John Langford of the Mekons on the show. Here he plays us out with a tune that he said the Country Music Hall of Fame was surprisingly okay with. It's called The Death of Country Music. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We are joined by a man who needs no introduction to the city of Chicago, John Lankford. Welcome, John. Good afternoon. An old, an old friend of mine as well. I'm, I'm, I believe this is your Radio Free Bridgeport debut, too. I think so. I've been in, I've been in this space before, though, but there wasn't a radio studio here. It was just a, it was just a vacant space of it despair. It was just a stage that I played <laughs> one night. So. And you were just listening to a new track off the, Meek, uh, the new Meekons album, correct? Yeah, well, it, it, we did a book last year which had an album tucked in the back of it, and then there was a lot of, it was about 12 different essays about various things. It was called Meekons Existentialism. Uh, and there was demand for the uh, CD, so it's come out on Bloodshot just as a CD, because we always we always obey what you always obey what consumer both, demand. What both our fans want, we listen to. The, the Mekons are known for obeying consumer demand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we got uh, it's our fortieth anniversary, so we thought we should have something come out this year. Forty years, fortieth, nineteen seventy-seven. The Mekons formed at the. At the Height of punk rock. That's amazing. Yeah, and of course, it is amazing. If, if we thought we were going to do it for about, you know, three weeks. <laughs> and of course, John, for people that don't know, John has been in Chicago for a very long time as an integral part of the, the Chicago music community. He's part of the Waco Brothers, uh, obviously part of the Mekons. He's a, a very talented solo artist. You have a solo painting career. I even picked up a bag of coffee the other day from Dark Matter that had a, a painting of yours on, on the bag. Yeah. I, I hope they paid you for that. How did you know it was my painting? Because I wasn't credited. Yeah, you were not credited, but I knew it was, I knew it was yours. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a, a clerical error at the record label, but Bloodshot did. Yeah, they did. A, this coffee's really good. The actually. coffee was quite good. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it yeah. was not bad at all. But they've yeah. run out now. It must have, the artwork was so great that they've sold them all, so I didn't. You can, I believe you can still get some at Casa de Puebla in Pilsen. If you, uh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I'll you want to stop and, by there after the show, buy a, I don't think I'd buy I'm going to buy a bag of coffee. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, John, tell us, tell us a little bit first about, about what's uh, obviously new Mekong Street release record. You brought your guitar with us. You can play some tunes. But tell us what's going on right now with you because you're involved in so many things. It's frankly hard to keep up. Uh, I just finished a bunch of gigs this weekend with a new project called John Langford's Four Lost Souls. And... Uh, I was working quite a bit down in Nashville last year, and I did stuff at the Country Music Hall of Fame. I did some painting for an exhibit called Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats, which, uh, you know, I, I wasn't very excited about working with the Country Music Hall of Fame because I just imagined it was, you know, I had one idea in my head of what it was going to be like, like a load of kind of glittery clothes in cases and didn't think it would be that interesting. But if this is a really passionate and kind of scholarly exhibit about what happened in Nashville in the 60s. Uh, when Dylan went down there, and, you know, the, and the kind of perceived truth of the matter is that you know Dylan went down there and turned on all these kind of conservative people and made them all into hippies. But really, what was going on? There was a lot of people there already in Nashville, like people like Norbert Putnam, David Briggs, and Charlie McCoy, who were kind of you know really into rock and roll and really into soul music. And then they ended up in Nashville because it was a a great place to make a living as a session musician, but these guys were pretty cool themselves, and it became the magnet then for, um, you know, people all through the 60s then ended up recorded in Nashville, and I met Norbert Putnam, who was the original bass player with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, and the country music, all the fame people were very, very nice to me and invited me to 
actually sing at the opening of this exhibit after I'd done all the artwork for it. So that was kind of cool. And they put like some of my paintings that weren't directly related to the exhibit on the walls in there. So even songs of mine that are very rude about Nashville uh, ended up on the walls of the Country Music Hall of Fame, which was startling. And then Norbert Putnam asked me if uh, I would go to Muscle Shoals and make an album. So he asked me once and I did really ma- didn't make any sense, didn't compute. <laughs> so I went away and I met him again six months later. He says, why haven't you come down to Muscle Shoals? And I, and I was like, well, maybe I will then. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, we had a kind of all star band of uh, Muscle Shoals guys who'd been playing longer than me. You know, when I'm the youngest person in the room, it's pretty pretty extreme. So, uh, but we made an album, and I took some people from here and some from Nashville, and we went down and recorded uh, and a full album for Bloodshot, which comes out in September. But we dipped our feet in the water this weekend and tried to do some gigs, and it was uh, really really cool. Was that the inspiration for the uh, Hank Williams Doctor Doom piece you did? The Hank Williams Doctor Doom piece, <laughs> which is that? I saw I I saw a piece that uh, it, he's he's kind of standing on a uh, a skull and it's talking about oh right prescriptions. Yeah. That's the Nashville radio. Yeah, there's a line from that song which is Doctor Doctor sign my prescription. I'm in trouble again. So uh, I was th- there's there's also I did a painting of Hank as. Uh, Saint Sebastian as well, where he shot through with arrows. Uh, but uh, yeah, Hank Williams was a when I first went back to painting again. He was the kind of subject I liked. I kind of thought of him as a kind of medieval saint or martyr, uh, someone who died at the hands of the music business. Did you? Did you just say when you went back to painting? Did you stop painting for a while? I did. I was an art student. Then punk rock happened, and uh, threw away my paintbrushes and. Played drums in the Mekons, then, you know, later played guitar and sang with the Mekons. And, and the Mekons have been going, you know, actually, as a, I don't know how many punk bands have been going continuously right the way from the very beginning with, I mean, the membership of the Mekons now is from about 1985 onwards, it's the same people. So that's quite a long time as well. Did you ever think punk rock was actually going to hang out this long? No. I don't know why it is actually. And now I find myself on stage like an old man playing songs with an acoustic guitar, and I think, ah, this is the sort of thing I wanted to destroy when I was nineteen. But but there's something there's something that connects it all. We're having a big festival in England this summer, uh, which is going to be sort of celebrate forty years of the Mekons, and I think we may have a kind of mass mass funeral at the end of it and just nail the whole thing down and then walk, <laughs> and then, walk and then away no more Mekons. walk away from it it's called Meconville build it you will no build it and they will come you, uh, speaking of being uh, an old man with a guitar I noticed that you're actually sitting in this studio with a guitar yeah I am I, I carry it with me it's like a it's a it's a totemistic object you carry it with you everywhere yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to play a tune for us? Maybe I should. I, what, 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 I actually brought the album from uh, that we did in Muscle Shoals, so did we could you? play a bit of that afterwards. But maybe sure, I'll yeah. do... I was mentioning that I was ended up on the wall of the Country Music Hall of Fame with a song I wrote called The Death of Country Music, which was basically all the artwork I made when I moved to the States was about how terrible America was and what a, what a kind of... What a mess capitalism had made of everything and every great creative explosion that occurs gets kind of commodified into non-existence and this was about country music uh this was meant to offend everyone in nashville so they'd never want me there but 
But it didn't work out that way. No, they've welcomed me with open arms. Well, I'll tell you what, John, why don't you give me the CD and then you play us a tune and then we'll play your CD afterwards. Okay. It does not work. How's that? All right. All right. Here we go. All right. Take that. Play track. Ooh, I don't know which track you play. We'll see. This is a master, too. Look at this. We're, we're very special, John. I, I don't think uh, anything's going on here. Play oh, track two because that's pretty, that's pretty lively and noisy and nasty. I'll do the death of country music right now. Great. John Langford right here on Lumpin' Radio. Oh, my body is a temple safer than a prison. I've done some demolition and in a world gone wrong. The death of country music rattles round the planet So we light the flame and fan it deep into the night Where the city casts its shadow We leave the straight and narrow Tomorrow and forever seems so far away Where the dance floor's overcrowded And the music's getting louder People do some breathing while they're cheating death Tonight the west is sleeping The desert will be creeping Inch by inch Across the continent And the bones of country Music lie there in there Casket beneath the towers of Nashville In a deep black pool of neglect So we cast our nets in the water Drag the pool and we caught them We grind them up and we snort them Deep into the night And we spill some blood on the ashes The bones of the Jones and the Cashes Skulls in false eyelashes Ghost riders in the sky The death of country Music, the death of country Music, the death of country Music, picking the flesh off the bones The hog bones connected to the buck bone The George bones connected to the hank bone The willy bones connected to the billy bones Picking the flesh off the bones The death of country Music Woo! <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. My thumbs seem to have got much fatter today. I can't really play the guitar. Fatter thumbs? Yeah, pretty yeah. fat, my thumbs. <laughs> so that was spectacular. That was great. Jimi Hendrix with no fingers. <laughs> the Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.